Um, I think we can get started. And uh, I'd like to welcome everyone to the seminar for week eight at the Latin American Center. And I'm going to start with a cliche, because the cliche is that the person who's speaking tonight uh, needs no introduction. And if you know this person, you know that he doesn't want an introduction <laughs> either. <laughs> so I'm actually going to semi-oblige him and just say that Alan Knight has been a tremendous colleague for the last 21 years, an outstanding professor of Latin American history at this institution. Judging by the number of uh, former students and colleagues and, uh, who have come out to hear him um, speak tonight, and he is a point of reference for all things Mexican outside of Mexico, every aspect of Mexican studies. Um, I just happened to notice this week, Ellen, that the chief of staff to the president of, the Mex uh, of Mexico on the Los Pinos website, in his own biography, makes a point that he came to Oxford to study with the renombrado historiador, Ellen Knight. <laughs> so if you're on the Los Pinos website, I think you've done okay for yourself. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, deliberate provocation. But, you know, no one has uh, done a better job of researching the, the history of the Mexican Revolution and history of the PRI, so maybe it's actually kind of a, a nice footnote that in 2013 the PRI is back in power and you're back on the website. <laughs> um, so without further ado, every minute I take of your time is time taken away from our speaker this evening. So it's a, it's a real pleasure uh, to introduce to you this evening Professor Alan Knight. Right, well, thank you, uh, thank you all for coming in, here in eighth week. Uh, this talk, which I'm going to compress into an hour if I go fairly quickly, was given last week at uh, a thing called NOLAN, which is the Nordic, the sort of Scandinavian equivalent of SLAS or LASA. And the uh, conference was about uh, frontiers, and this was the convocatoria, which was quite kind of wordy, but basically it was to ask us about the status of frontiers. Now, I personally, uh, being as um, as Tim said, a point of reference for all things Mexican. I would rather have talked just about Mexico and just about the period I knew most about, which is about 1880 to 1950 or so. But it was clear both from the audience there and I suspect the audience here that there is interest in a number of other countries, not just Mexico and not just the kind of the ancient history stuff, but also contemporary frontiers. So at great risk, I'm going to sort of trespass much more widely and talk about other countries and indeed try to come up to the present. Uh, the risk is, of course, I know much less about that. There will be people in this room who know much more about other countries and contemporary questions to do with frontiers. But I think it's quite useful to do that. I've always thought that uh, historians should try and avoid just concentrating on their own country and the peculiarities. I mean, there are phrases, you know, como Mexico no hay dos, Mexico is peculiar, all countries are peculiar. It's actually quite beneficial to sort of rise a bit beyond the, the rock to which you are stuck like a limpet and look at other uh, regions and look at frontiers uh, and even perhaps to look, at, could I say, at transnational trends. Uh, you have to say transnational by at least page one of all lectures these days. I've now said it so I can wash out my mouth and move on. So I'm going to talk about Mexico among other cases but the scope is wider. Now, the risk of a sort of sprawling discussion of this kind is it has no central argument. It's just one damn thing after another. So what I'm going to try to do is first present a kind of stylized uh, trajectory of Latin America in terms of frontiers and actually going beyond that. I'm going to talk about borders, frontiers, and nation and state building. And the, the stylized story goes something like this. I'm not going to totally disagree with the story, but this is a, a kind of benchmark we can use. Um, Initially, Latin American states, going back to the 1820s, and I'm going to differentiate states and nations in a minute, were weak, difficult, they found it hard to control territory, 
nationalism was embryonic, some would say non-existent. Through the later 19th to early 20th century, states and nations strengthened, frontiers became more definite. States, while facing major challenges to authority and sovereignty, adopted policies to bolster both state and nation. Thus, in the words of the Mexican anthropologist Manuel Gamio, to forjar patria, to create a nation. Now we can debate, and I will discuss, how much they succeeded, but there is little doubt that this process accelerated so that by, let us say, uh, 1930, Latin American states and nations were a good deal stronger than they had been 100 years ago. However, in recent decades, let's say since the 70s, counter-processes have supposedly been uh, detected, and in place of state and nation building, we supposedly see state and nation weakening. The state is being rolled back, slimmed, other forces have strengthened, globalization, a term you always have to mention by page two, so I've now got that off the agenda as well. Globalization has eroded borders, national allegiances, and state capacity. Just take just one, I mean, I'm going to cut out lots of examples for water time, but I have to give a few. To take one example, admittedly from a rather literary approach, Mexican Jose Maria Espinosa, who declares, quote, In Mexico, the revolution of 1910 established, this is his words translated, a rhetorical identity based on nationalism, an element that had been present, if in less hegemonic fashion, in the 19th century and is almost non-existent in the 21st. Now, admittedly, he's talking from a literary point of view, but that's a kind of bold statement. Now, when it comes to what's doing the weakening of state and nation, you could make a distinction between external and internal factors. External would include transnational capital, supranational organizations, trade blocs, multilateral agencies, NGOs. Subnational would include sectional, regional interests and authorities, regional elites and governments, migrants, ethnic movements, and organized crime. So there's quite a ragbag of possible candidates for who's doing the state weakening. At any rate, according to this view, the state and nation building spade work of all earlier generations is now being undone and frontiers once consolidated are being eroded. Now if true this is important since not long ago nationalism which implies strong nation states with firm territorial control was widely seen as the dominant ideology of our time 20th century view particularly in the third world and including Latin America. Yet now, in contrast, we find gurus like Kenicho Omai declaring that we live, and we live the better, he says, in, quote, a borderless world. That's the title of his book. Where, he says, global economic integration, quote, has made traditional borders so faint as to be invisible and has rendered obsolete the traditional instruments of central bankers, interest rates and money supply. I've got quite a long list of um, uh, Kenichiwa Mai quotes, and the more you read, the less faith you put in what he says, but I won't, I won't give you the others. This was written uh, around about 2000. Now, I should stress, that if this is true, that if nations and nationalism and borders are declining, I don't want to argue it's either good or bad. If the mid-20th century Latin American state, at the height of its power, was corrupt, authoritarian, parasitic, even racist, then its decline should be presumably applauded, assuming we disagree with those things. I mean, most people in this room probably do. Not everybody in the world does. And on the other hand, if we have a more positive view of the nation-state as a source of order, social solidarity, material benefits, then perhaps its decline is to be regretted. I've argued elsewhere in another paper that building up a a sort of bolstering a corrupt authoritarian state may be bad, uh, but dismantling a democratic welfare state may also be bad. In other words, rather than advocate either state shrinking or state building a priori, it seems to me we should consider the nature of the state in question in light of whatever norms we happen to hold. 
Norms are individual. I think they're in some ways non-negotiable. So I'm going to avoid normative arguments about what's good or bad. Uh, so I'm not trying to sort of justify nationalism or to evaluate historical actors, good or bad, in terms of their nationalist credentials. My goal as a historian, this sounds completely positivistic and antiquated, is to try to tell it like it was or is. I could now cite either Easy Rider, because the cineast will remember that famous tagline, or Leopold von Ranke, or other historians and so on. Anyway, that, that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm looking at the big trajectory of the Latin American state from initial weakness, fluid frontiers, through a period of successful state and nation building to the perhaps regression of the last 30 or so years when, as the Convocatoria says, borders, frontiers are being called into question. Is this a valid view? Now, with any big argument of this kind, it's usually worth clarifying some of your concepts. Now, I was terrified in giving the lecture because I thought Chris Jahn would certainly ask me at the end of it all, what is my theory? And the truth is, I have to admit, I don't have a theory. What I do have are a number of working concepts, which I'm now going to try and briefly define. So this is slightly more conceptual. They involve frontiers and borders on the one hand, and nations and states on the other. Now, in terms of nations and of borders and frontiers, I could make a simple semantic distinction. For me, we have international political borders drawn on the map, demarcating states would-be states or actual nation-states. And these define the limits of political jurisdiction and the conventional units, the black boxes, if you like, of IR conventional theory. There are, of course, subnational political borders, states of federal systems, provinces, departments, which are important, but I'm not going to look at them. And, of course, regional history, the history of what goes on inside regions and states, is extremely important. It's probably the most important area of historical progress in the last 30, 40 years. Again, I'm not going to look at that. I'm taking a fairly national view. And lastly, I'm not going to look at rival borders, institutional boundaries such as the Catholic Church, because that's also very important. I'm looking at national rather than subnational borders. Now, frontiers, I will distinguish, uh, and they are also very important. And by frontiers, I'm thinking initially of frontiers of settlement, analogous to that famously studied by Frederick Jackson Turner in the US. These are internal frontiers, much harder to draw on a map. They trace settlement, the advance of population into so-called virgin territory, often not as virginal as often supposed, but which could also be extended to include the spread of communications, such as railways, telegraph, roads, telephone, radio, TV, even more broadly, the spread of economic or cultural influence. For example, the way that market forces spread out from primate cities like Guadalajara in western Mexico, Monterey in the northeast. Finally, you could even consider frontiers in terms of the spread of news and opinion via newspapers, oral transmission, often and very important, church sermons, songs, gossip in the market, and more recently, electronic media. So just as supposedly empty space fills with people, so too it fills up with commodities and information and the means of shifting both across large tracts of space. And I've stressed at all points supposedly virgin empty territory, because um, if you look at the I was going to say the Mickey Mouse money of Argentina, which would annoy certain people. Um, this, of course, is Julio Roca, and this is him on horseback with his, his chaps going uh, down for the so-called conquest of the desert, which was a conquest, but it wasn't really a desert because there were actually a number of people living down there who were uh, uh, got rid of. So 
the formation and filling up of frontiers is a compli complicated process. It's a two-way process. It's not just, as Roca or Sarmento had it, the imposition of civilization on barbarism, and it's far beyond the scope of this talk. Now, it is, however... Um, relevant in a couple of ways that I want to try to clarify. The creation of states and nations is closely linked to the filling in of internal frontiers. If a state is to control its territory, extract resources, i.e. tax, police, enumerate, maybe even educate its people, the people who like it or not happen to live in its territory, it needs to fill in those gaps and to make a reality of state power over what are sometimes huge uh, swathes of territory. In Latin America, the territorial extent has been huge and the population very small. So I just give you some illustrative population densities for the mid-19th century. And I put Norway because I was giving the talk in Norway. And as you can see, Norway, very underpopulated in Europe, is on a par with Mexico, which was fairly populated. Cuba is an outlier, and many other countries have extremely low population densities in the mid-19th century. Now, the way you fill the gaps to make a reality of the, of the state and the nation is by settlement, hence Alberti's famous comment, gobernar es poblar. But states have to do much more than that, and I would suggest there are four things that states do to become meaningful, effective states. They have to extend their coercive, their extractive, their cognitive, Lawrence is not here, but he wrote about that, and discursive reach. So to govern, it's not just to populate, but it's also to twist arms, that's the coercive bit, to pick pockets, that's the extractive, to collect information, that's cognitive, and to emit exhortations and lessons to the people, that's the discursive bit. And the cognitive discursive effort means finding out about the na national population and promoting national sentiments among them, as I'll go on to mention. If nationhood is successfully promoted, if allegiances are inculcated by schools, the media, mass organisations, national cohesion and borders are thus cemented. Filling in the internal frontier, making a reality of state power, thus fortifies the nation-state and its borders, which instead of just being arbitrary lines drawn in the sand, become genuine liminal markers, making travellers aware of cross-national contrast. As Graham Greene observed when he crossed from the US into Mexico in 1938, Quote, the border means more than just a customs house, a passport officer, and a man with a gun. Though those are quite important features. Over there, great Graham Greene wrote, everything is going to be different. It should be said this is what he anticipated, and when he finally got there, he was actually quite disappointed. This, he says, was Mexico. That was the US. The only difference was dirt and darkness. Well, all that tells you is Graham Greene liked alliteration, and he certainly didn't much like Mexico, but I'll, I'll, I won't pursue Graham Greene any further. Secondly, in a rather more precise way, the advancing internal frontier can lead to a strengthening of borders when, for example, states actively colonise frontier areas, filling them up with people, promoting settlement, improving communications, enhancing the reach of the state and the appeal of the nation. Having lost a huge chunk of its northern territory to the US in the 1840s, Mexican government sought to populate the north, build up border settlements by means of land grants, railway subsidies, tax concessions, and eventually ideological projects to inculcate Mexicanidad along the border, and I think with some success. As the internal frontier filled up, I repeat, not just with people, but goods, information, communications, and so on, so national borders became more of a reality.
Similar efforts were undertaken by, for example, the Brazilian government to advance the inland frontier Amazonia and elsewhere. And indeed, in Amazonia, you get a sort of collision between at least four would-be nation-states, Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, producing sporadic skirmishes, minor wars, and, of course, harsh exploitation of local people and resources, notably along the Putumayo. Right, now that's border and frontier. I'll come back to that as I proceed. Then there's another even more complicated sort of conceptual problem involving state and nation. A basic definition of the state can be derived from Weber. The modern state is the sovereign authority that claims, and if successful, attains, quote, a monopoly of legitimate use of physical violence within a given territory or physical force. But this is a rather limited descriptive or even aspirational definition which can coexist with very different functional theories about what the state actually does. I'm just thinking if I've missed a picture, but not yet, no. Uh, what the state actually uh, uh, does over the territory where it has this supposed monopoly. You could play in divergent Marxist approaches, the agent state, the relatively autonomous state, liberal pluralist, organic corporate models, and so on. I don't think we have to make a decision as to which model we want to use of the state. We are really looking more at its capacity, particularly in terms of controlling the territory and maintaining borders. I'm going to skip over a rather longer discussion of state formation because it's not perhaps so directly relevant. Now, one role of the state relates to that even more murky concept, the nation. Again, I'm not going to get into well-known debates about modern versus instrumental versus traditional and primordialist views of the nation nationalism. There's a lot written about all of that. We can confidently say that Latin America has 20 polities that have historically claimed to be nation-states, in several cases, for nearly 200 years. The bicentenary of the Mexican Constitution of Apatzingán falls next year, that of Argentina's Congress of Tucumán two years later. The oldest, we should not forget, is Haiti, whose first constitution was promulgated 212 years ago. Whatever may be the challenges faced by the Latin American nation-states, historically or today, and obviously the challenges change over time, this claim to nation-statehood is old, much older than in Asia or Africa, indeed older than what we tend to think of as established European nation-states like Italy or Germany, not to mention Slovenia, Slovakia, Moldova, and so on. Even Norway, where I first gave this talk, is half the age of most Latin American nation-states. So it's a striking fact that the Latin American nation-states are not only old, uh, but they're also reasonably well-defined. Most are nearly 200 years old. The youngest, Panama, was born 110 years ago. Prior to Panama, the last phase of, gen of national genesis came in the 1830s with the breakup of Gran Colombia, of the Peru-Bolivia Union, the Central American Federation, out of which came Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru-Bolivia, and the five nations of Central America. Although it's arguable that even they had some incipient or proto-nationalist uh, reality even before those federations cracked up. Furthermore, the borders established in this, if you like, seed time of nations have remained remarkably have remained remarkably constant over time. If you look, uh, this is Latin America in uh, 1830. It's a pretty feeble map, but actually the borders are not that radically different. Once you disassemble Gran Colombia into its component parts and the Central American uh, Confederation, what you have looks substantially like modern Latin America. If you took a map of the Middle East, it would be totally different. Eastern Europe would be substantially different too. Furthermore, so these borders have remained fairly um, 
permanent. Iridenta have been small and rare. There have, of course, been a few examples of territorial disputes and even territorial transfer, the biggest being Mexico's loss of a large chunk of what is now the United States. Uh, but elsewhere, the transfers of uh, territory between nation-states have been relatively small. Tarapacá, Tacnarica, the Acre Territory, Bolivia to Brazil, Leticia, and a chunk of the Chaco. Uh, one feature of all this has been uh, the territorial stability has been the absence relatively over 200 years with 20 countries of major international wars. Worldwide Centeno notes Latin America stands out for the general absence of organized slaughter between nations. War, it's true, presaged the breakup of the Peru-Bolivia Confederation and Central America. The wars of the Pacific and the Chaco produced territorial transfers. Nevertheless, over 150 years, only about a quarter of a million square kilometers, which I reckon is about 1% of Latin America by area, have been transferred from one country to another. And the biggest transfer, the Acre Territory, was done peacefully. Now, of course, you may say land is land, population would be more important. I decided it was practically impossible to calculate population, but I would say the percentage of Latin American population in those territories was even less than 1%. So, major wars and territorial changes have been very few. That may sound positive, but of course you could put it a different way and say this means that Latin American armies, though they've rarely fought each other, have tended on the whole to turn their weapons on their own citizens. Now, if the map has remained stable for 200 years, what does this tell us about the nature of the nation-state and the relation between state and nation? Now, the basic premise in Latin America and elsewhere is that a nation deserves and needs a state, without which it becomes like the Poles or the Irish of the past or the Kurds and the Catalans today, an oppressed minority whose cultural, ethnic, linguistic survival is at stake. Of course, the ways in which nations are conceived and justified varies across the globe. In the case of Latin America, a useful distinction is conveyed by the old joke, I apologise for repeating this, you've probably heard it before, and it's not really all that funny, that while the Peruvians descended from the Incas and the Mexicans descended from the Aztecs, the Argentines descended from the ships. The ships. Intelligent lady in the front knows the punchline. <laughs> the joke does encapsulate a distinction made between ethnic nations sharing supposed common descent and culture, so... Incas, Aztecs, Turks, maybe Germans, and civic nations claiming co common citizenship, Argentines, French, Americans, and ancient Athenians. Both sorts of nations could be, I think, taken together and subsumed under Renan's useful rule of thumb, and I'll get a quote, the, the, the famous quote from Renan, that a nation is based on the idea, quote, of having accomplished great things together and wanting to do so again. And he does add an important rider to that, another feature of nationhood is forgetting quite a lot as well. So in other words, nations are historically constituted, their common history possibly being ethnic, based on descent or civic, shared citizenship, to which could be added a whole range of cultural elements relating to religion, think of the Virgin of Guadalupe, food and drink, sport, territory, uh, landscape, flora and fauna, eagles and condors and cactus and palm trees, the heights of Machu Picchu, the plains of the Pampas, and the landscapes and locomotives of Mexico depicted by José María Velázquez. Now, if, if nations need states to preserve their independence, states also need or benefit from, uh, from nations to legitimise their existence and activities. 
Nation-states came into being, to put it rather crudely, as old legitimacies involving throne and altar came to an end. And of course they came to an end much earlier in the Americas than in Europe or Asia, rather too early for Gellner's stress on industrialization to be convincing, but I'm not going to go into that. Nation-states have to proclaim the particularity of the people they rule. They can't accept that the division of humankind is often arbitrary, nor in the Americas can they claim the division was decreed either by God or the Pope or hereditary privilege. So whether national allegiances are premised on descent, citizenship, history, religion, landscape or whatever, they have to possess, and I'd argue in the Latin American case they normally have possessed, some genuine legitimizing appeal. The state cannot base its authority just on simple cost-benefit calculations, on claims that it will, like Hobbes' Leviathan, keep its citizens safe. You can say the same about NATO, which has no claims to be a nation. Nor that it simply enhances material well-being, like NAFTA or Mercosur, even though there are some rather half-baked notions that NAFTA and the northern Mexico is sort of turning into a proto-nation. I don't buy that at all. Rational actor models, based on a sort of narrow cost-benefit calculation, sometimes called utility, may explain some things, but they're not very good at explaining nationalism. But while nationalism is effective more than instrumental, it remains a crucial force legitimising states. States still need nationalism, which is why they spend a lot of time trying to inculcate it. Of course, national sentiments in Latin America and elsewhere can coexist with others. Loyalty to family, clan, region, subnational ethnic group, sectoral interest, political party, gender or church. And it's a mistake, I think, to imagine that these different loyalties are locked in a zero-sum game which, which more of one necessarily means less of the other. I think often regional, national, local loyalties are perfectly compatible. I mean, I lived in Texas for six years, and there are a few places that are more nationally chauvinistic as well as regionally. And I think that is also true in many Latin American cases. I would throw out an example like Barranquilla and Colombia, which um, Eduardo can, can either refute or accept, uh, Chihuahua and Mexico, and so on. Also, it's a commonplace that nationalist claims made by states are often contested. The state doesn't have a monopoly of that nationalist claim. Nationalism in Latin America can consort with liberalism, socialism, Marxism, Catholicism. I think perhaps anarchism is the main exception. It can flourish on left and right. It is compatible with both democratic and authoritarian uh, systems. In Europe, the tendency has been to see nationalism in the 20th century at least as a right-wing tendency, but it wasn't always thus in Europe. And indeed, if we look at the world at large, that supposed correlation between nationalism and the right looks actually very weak. And certainly in Latin America, nationalism has no, if you like, elective affinity with the right. Quite often, in fact, the left claims a rather spurious monopoly of nationalism, the right being seen as cosmopolitan, clerical, Catholic, gringophile, vindipatrius, and all the rest, but that's also a myth. There have been plenty of conservative, Catholic, and clerical nationalisms with very genuine claims to patriotic status. So another cliché, nationalism is a contested concept. It spans the whole political spectrum. And while states regularly make nationalist claims, there's no reason to take them at face value. States and nations may be closely wedded in many cases, but divorces can happen. They may in the UK next year. States can also change radically, democratic, authoritarian, back again, while nations persist. States can even collapse completely, as the Mexican state did during the revolution, without the Mexican nation suffering a sort of existential crisis. 
Nations can, of course, disappear too, either in the extreme sense that the group claiming national status disappears because of genocide, depopulation or assimilation, or in the more common sense that while a recognisable ethnic group persists, all claims to a fully national status are abandoned, the group remains at most a subnational minority or nowadays people. And there are examples we could think of, including in Latin America. So for all their intimate historical symbiosis, whereby nations need states to survive and states often need nations to legitimise themselves, the link is not indissoluble. And this seems relevant when we are told Latin American state power is irrevocably waning. Even if this is true, it does not follow that Latin American nations and nationalism are also declining. Or that, given the supposed decline of the nation, national borders have become porous and meaningless. That may be partially true in respect of security, which is a question largely of state capacity, criminal challenges to the state, but porous borders do not reflect a diminution of the nation. Indeed, I'll note in conclusion, if time permits, that the Mexican narco interests, who are one of the ones eroding the border, are by and large extremely nationalistic and are often seen to be nationalistic. Conversely, there have been many powerful states in history, powerful in terms of their executive power, like the Soviet Union, or their sheer longevity, the Ottoman and Habsburg empires, which lacked national cohesion or any nationalist glue. They were held together by other kinds of glues, dynastic, religious or ideological. However, since the fall of the Iberian empires 200 years ago, there have been no comparable cases in Latin America that I'm aware of. In other words, nationalism is the glue that na nation states need. We have seen weak states with weak nations, which was the 19th century norm. More recently, strong states, often with strong national sentiments, post-revolutionary Cuba, good case, maybe Brazil and Mexico too. Or sometimes weaker states ruling strong, by which I mean well-constituted nations, such as Colombia. But I can't think of a strong Latin American state, one that endures and has effective uh, capacity, that has done so without enjoying a real measure of national cohesion and sentiment. So the Ottoman Habsburg formula is just absent. State and nation building, though analytically distinct, have been intimately intertwined. Now I'm now going to turn for the last uh, 25 minutes of the talk to some more historical ex uh, examples and I have a kind of trajectory of state and nation formation in Latin America over the 19th and 20th century and this is the first half, the first two periods uh, of my periodization. Now, by the mid-19th century, the borders of the successor states of the old empires were, as I've said, well defined. The map looks pretty much the same then as it does now. But this definition of borders did not mean strong states or cohesive national identities. On the contrary, borders were often tacitly accepted because they were remote, remote, underpopulated, beyond the effective reach of distant capital cities, for example, in the Amazon basin. The weakness of states is very clear and can be suggested, for example, in terms of tax revenue or the military bureaucratic payroll and poor communications. In Colombia, where the tax yield was particularly low, revenue in 1871 was 70 cents US per capita. By 1913, it had struggled to reach $2 per capita. And I'm going to give more examples to show uh, fiscal increase through the 20th century. Sarmiento, writing in the 1840s, lamented that the average Argentine, Argentine caudillo presided over, quote, a dull or weak government which was completely incapable of creating a revenue system. 
Post-independence Mexico, according to Tenenbaum's analysis, suffered from what she calls the politics of penury, low income, little credit and excessive expenditure, particularly on the military. States also face serious challenges to their authority, recurrent Indian and peasant rebellions, dissident elites, powerful church, often hostile to the state, threatening foreign powers. Mexico fared worst. I'm still talking about the mid-19th century. It abutted a powerful predatory neighbour. The church was rich and deeply rooted, popular and regional resistance to the centre was robust. The perfect storm broke out in Yucatan in the 1840s and American troops invaded Mexico by land and sea. The Yucateco Maya rose in revolt and the elite, threatened by caste war, despairing of the distant Mexico City government, sought to secede from Mexico, imploring Britain, France, Spain, even the US with which Mexico was at war, to take the peninsula under its imperial wing. The promiscuity of these appeals, sort of anybody who was on offer, suggests not only the shallowness of the elite's patriotism, but also the instrumental nature of their alternatives. Above all, they wanted to get the Mexican state, which was remote and ineffectual, off their back and get sufficient military muscle to deal with what were called the infuriated aborigines of the peninsula. Now, it's often assumed that even more than elites, the popular classes lacked patriotism. They were unaware of, certainly indifferent if not hostile, to the patria. Elite writers peddled these opinions, Sarmiento again, noting that the Caudillo Facundo pr preferred to wave a piratical black flag rather than the national flag, lamented, quote, the lack of any national bond among Argentines. The inhabitants of Cordoba, for example, the inhabitant of Cordoba does not look beyond his own horizon, and that horizon is about four blocks from his own house. Localism, or what Eric Van Young chooses to call campanilismo, trumped any national sentiment. And through the 19th century, Mexican elites continued blaming the common people's lack of patriotism for their country's plight. Justo Sierra, writing under Diaz, believed, quote, that the rural masses are inert, ignorant, without any common spirit, without feeling for their country. Peruvian Indians and their so-called lack of a patriotic sense were, in Ricardo Palma's words, responsible for Chile's victory in the War of the Pacific. Now, while any attempt to measure the national sentiments of 19th century people, including even literate elite people, is difficult, there are many reasons to be sceptical of these accounts. Florencio Malon argues that the Peruvian populace was no less, and indeed was probably more, patriotic than their social superiors when it came to resisting Chilean invaders during the War of the Pacific. She also stresses national resistance which Mexican villagers put up when faced with French invaders in the 1860s. Long before that, the urban plebeians of Buenos Aires successfully resisted two invading British armies, 1806-7, and when 30 years later General Mancilla, addressing a public meeting during the French naval blockade of 1839, asked, what have we to learn from these Europeans who are not equal to one night's gallop across the pampas? I mean, that's the sort of the sign of true machismo is riding a horse all night. And when he said this, quote, the vast plebeian, plebeian audience drowned the speaker's voice with thunders of applause. A generation later, Paraguayan Indians rallied to the patriotic cause in their country's unequal struggle against the Triple Alliance, and Mapuche Indians volunteered to fight for Chile in the War of the Pacific. I was a bit surprised, but there's good evidence of that. As for Mexico, it's debatable whether the war against the US was lost due to popular indifference rather than elite incompetence, plus possibly the treason of Santa Ana. And we should recall, of course, it was the Yucatan elite which sought to secede from the Confederation at the time of war. Now, these various examples of popular
popular patriotic engagement require a bit of qualification very quickly. The evidence is partial, and at best it suggests we should discard notions of patriotic elites bravely struggling to lead unpatriotic, indifferent, ignorant parochial masses. That was probably just elite prejudice. European examples, after all, show that the plebeians could be just as patriotic as the patricians. I mean, English popular chauvinism goes back at least to Shakespeare, contra Benedict Anderson. I don't believe you need a print media and widespread literacy to generate patriotic feelings amongst the so-called imagined community. And secondly, I'm not trying to sort of pat the popular classes on the back because of their patriotic sentiments. Often these seem to have been based on rather nasty xenophobic prejudices, such as the Argentine popular belief that the English, being Protestant heretics, had tails tucked inside their trousers. So I'm not saying this is a wonderful, enlightened attitude. Some patriotism may indeed have been instrumental. The Mapuche perhaps volunteered for military service to show their adhesion to the national cause and get practical benefits, as the Tarumara did in northern Mexico during the Apache Wars, and as Guatemalan Mayan villagers would do under President Ubico in the 20th century. So some of this may have been instrumental, but I don't think all of it was. And finally, I'm not saying that war is the only or best test of patriotism. After all, pacifists can be just as patriotic as anyone else witnessed Gandhi. However, it is a valid test, as Peter Salins has stressed in his famous study of Pyrenean frontier formation. And it's one that offers a way of gauging popular sentiments at a time when the people, of course, had few ways of expressing them. There was, they didn't write much, they didn't vote. Finally, there is one bigger problem for which I have no good answer. Most of these cases of popular nationalist engagement involve, involve defensive wars fought on home ground. The War of the Pacific, the Chileans would be the exception. Now that, I don't think, disqualifies the presumption of popular patriotism, but it does raise the tricky question of motive. Did Mexican peasants who resisted French invaders in the 1860s, or indeed their Paraguayan or Peruvian counterparts in about the same period, did they fight to defend the patria, the patria grande, or rather their own locality, the patria chica? Were they, in Luis González's words, patriotas or matriotas? Were they defending their fields and families rather than some great national cause? What they said offers some clues, but it's not conclusive. And my hunch is that both motives were at work. Local and national, and sometimes also religious sentiment, may have been at work. In other words, the people, like their elite superiors, had multiple identities, if you like, and motivations. These coexisted, sometimes pulling in different directions and sometimes uh, in the same. In these cases, as in the Pyrenean region studied by Peter Salins, quote, national identities were grounded in the affirmation and defence of social and territorial boundaries against outsiders. People affirmed their nationality without abandoning a local sense of place. And often, I suspect, the alleged anti-patriotism of the common people, recited in numerous elite studies, was in fact referring to anti-statism. Putting it bluntly, elites attributed to the common people indifference, sorry, they attributed the people's indifference or hostility to the state to anti-national rather than anti-state sentiments. And those accusations could easily be made because popular anti-statism evidence in resistance to taxation, to forced recruitment, to central political control was extensive in 19th and even into 20th century Latin America. But to attribute that resistance to anti-patriotism involved an illicit conflation of state and nation, a category error which I've said we should try to avoid. Now popular anti-statism was common because 19th century states, though weak, were usually parasitic and predatory. 
the common people usually saw the state in the form of the imposed official, the tax collector, the recruiting sergeant. The weakness of that state is clear. Latin American states depended on foreign trade for income, and around 1850 foreign trade was very limited, such that some states, like Bolivia, had to resort to the old colonial head tax, which was another source of discontent. Revenue, as I mentioned, was low, and the resources the state could extract served no obvious collective benefit. What the state got serviced foreign debts, often rashly incurred and spent, paid for the politicised armies which strutted on the national stage. So the state extracted and repressed. It might or might not defend national sovereignty, but it played a minimal social role. By and large, the 19th century state did not protect, heal or educate. It was not, in Gramsci's phrase, an ethical state. Popular attitudes to the state were not surprisingly indifferent or hostile. Popular protests often focused on the state rather than on oppressive landlords. There's a clear sea change if you look at the, the great sweep of history. And therefore national borders were porous, not because national sentiments were absent, but because state control was lacking. And border customs, being an important source of revenue, um, contraband was rife, facilitated by the common belief among most people, that the state was the villain, smugglers were local heroes. Now, a change, I'm going to move on rather rapidly now, uh, change occurred through the later and into the um, early 20th century. Uh, and you can see this in a number of ways. Uh, economic growth, integration in world markets, more resources for the government, and a significant growth in government revenue. I don't have a time series, uh, it would not be too difficult to do it, but under B you'll see how government revenue per capita by 1913, particularly in the southern cone, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, is up to something not far off European uh, proportions. With solvency came stability, technology and investment gave the state greater control, Railways, telegraphs, superior armaments were available. A more professional military, armed with machine guns, breech loaders and field artillery, backed up by rural constabularies, policed the national territory and made national borders more secure and profitable. So customs revenue rose. Thus we see the growth of so-called order and progress regimes, some outright authoritarian, some more civilian, some even moderately representative. They vary right across the spectrum, Porfirio in Mexico, civilistas in Peru, Venezuela under Castro and Gomez, very authoritarian, Guatemala, Estado Cabrera, Bolivian Rosca, Argentina under, yet again, Julio Roca. Now, whatever their political complexion, all of these enjoyed greater territorial, including border control, greater cognitive grasp of their territories, greater extractive power. But enhanced state power did not necessarily correlate with enhanced nationalism. Forjar Estado was not the same as Forjar Patria. Education, and no, education must be back there. Yeah, well, literacy. Um, take literacy as a reasonable proxy of education, much of it, not all of it, provided by the state. Uh, education, uh, literacy ranged very widely, moderately high again in the southern cone, very much lower in what you could call loosely uh, Indo-America. The oligarchic state <coughs> lacked mass organisations. Parties were run by local notables. The military often adopted a European colonial model. They even looked like colonial armies. Trade unions were incipient. Peasants, particularly Indian peasants, were largely excluded from formal politics. The period also saw almost genocidal campaigns against Yaqui and Maya Indians in Mexico, conquest of the desert in Argentina, and many lesser repressive actions. 
we could, I think, speak of a kind of oligarchic denationalization of the population as elites copying the positivism, racism, and social Darwinism of their European counterparts, use their new state power to coerce, dispossess, and regiment their recalcitrant populations. These policies being justified by an almost colonial discourse about lazy natives and order and progress. Where possible, again, Argentina, Uruguay, southern Brazil, states brought in supposedly superior European migrants. Mexican elites were eager to try this, but failed. But even with success, there came an additional problem, that is a non- or anti-national population of Spanish, Italian, worst of all, Eastern European Jewish migrants, who in their different way threatened national cohesion, hence displays of xenophobia, such as the Semana Tragica in Buenos Aires. So while the state grew stronger, particularly in terms of its extractive powers and its coercion, it's hard to see any increase in national integration of a broad commitment to the nation. Indeed, one might guess, though I can't prove it, that state policy inflected with racism, preferring the stick to the carrot and lacking any social penetration, that's to say no very few schools, parties, syndicatos, peasant leagues and so on, was in many ways less nation-building than nation-denying or even destroying. However, if we jump ahead, you'll be glad to hear we, the end is kind of in sight. If we jump ahead to the mid-20th century, that's roughly take the period 1930 to 1980, I think we then begin to see a different panorama. So this is the last, these are the last two periods of the big trajectory. Putting, putting it simply, state and nation uh, both grew and achieved a closer symbiosis. State power became more socially embedded, also more nationalist, committed to nationalist integration, often under state auspices. The state grew stronger in terms of spending. I think if I got this right, um, I wouldn't place complete faith in these figures. They're sort of illustrative rather than certain. But you can see that by the time we get to the 1970s, state spending is quite substantial. Again, more in some countries than others. This was possible because 1930 to 80 saw sustained economic growth. It was in many ways the, the best period period of sustained economic growth in Latin America, though population growth eroded the per capita rate. States now had more resources. Furthermore, state spending went beyond the traditional priorities of foreign debt, the military and administration. The state, in Jim Wilkie's terms, became more active, going beyond its basic administrative tasks to a new range of social and economic commitments. In fact, if you compare these figures with Europe, um, state spending in Latin America is never that enormously high, but there is a substantial growth uh, within the continent. Uh, I'll skip over one or two elements of this for want of time. With this also went economic nationalist policies designed to control foreign investment, to curtail enclaves, hike taxes on foreign business, to encourage nationalisation of labour force, occasionally to actually nationalise foreign assets, although that was not as common as, as, as some people suppose. Uh, and although all this involved enhancement of state power, it's arguable the chief beneficiary was perhaps less the state than domestic private business, which now enjoyed protection and subsidies. As Colin Lewis puts it, referring to the, uh, the dominant economic ideology of the time, sepalismo, the ideology of sepal or, or ecla, may have been interventionist and statist, but it was never anti-market or anti-business. So the result was a fairly successful sort of producers' alliance involving the state private business, sometimes the national bourgeoisie, which favoured organised labour and white-collar workers. Outside this charmed circle stood workers in the informal sector and many of the peasants, who of course voted with their feet and flocked to the cities, or if they were Mexicans, to the US. 
Now, although this was quite a regressive economic model, often producing considerable inequality, it, has, it, it, it had its inclusionary aspects. Hence, it's sometimes called, going to go back to the uh, trajectory again, it is sometimes called a populist state, which I'm not keen on, so I'm going to call it developmentalist. I'm sure there are objections to that too. And this new state had to take into account mass publics, large groups of citizens, particularly in the cities. This could be by means of electoral mobilisation, but even when elections were absent, other forms of incorporation, to use the Collier's phrase, were evident. Parties of notables now became more genuinely mass parties. Local and regional machines were inserted into national politics. Trade unions, labour confederations forged alliance with national political leaders. And this, these processes occurred under both revolutionary auspices in Mexico and Bolivia, populist form with Perón, perhaps Vargas, or more institutional and democratic guys in Chile and Colombia. The state also deployed a range of cultural policies. I can't go into that. Education, print media, radio, television, art, music, film, sport. Good book by Daryl Williams, The Culture Wars in Brazil, which deals with that. Literacy increased. Mass higher education appeared for the first time, which is why you get the first big student protests. Now, of course, some of this was window dressing. Uh, we shouldn't take it all seriously. But it did mean that the public transcript of the state, to use Scott's phrase, could be used uh, to justify popular engagement. Maybe some state activists really believed in this discourse, and even if they didn't, they could be held to account in terms of its content. Above all, states which have to engage with society by creating and fermenting, developing mass institutions, then have a sort of sounding board or a two-way transmission belt whereby those people can also feed messages back. Now, it may be in arguing this that there was a two-way sort of social penetration going on. I'm influenced by my Mexican background because it's now a staple feature of Mexican history that from the 20s and 30s onwards, the Mexican state did engage, often in a quite authoritarian way, with society and did in turn receive uh, messages, uh, indications and lobbying back again. But I suspect that this could also be argued, if in different ways, with other cases as well. I don't think Mexico is entirely aberrant. The Bolivian state of the 50s and 60s, even post-64, post the military coup, forged an alliance with the peasantry. In Peru, where no popular revolution of court, uh, occurred, the state was seen, Nugent argues, as an ally by provincial middle-class dissidents. There are cases from Ecuador and so on. I can't give you all the cases, but I think it does stack up. Now, I come to my last quick fast-forward move, roughly to the present generation, where I know less and less, and you may know more and more. Now, to summarise an extremely complicated picture, I think we could say that the new neoliberal model in economic terms, it did involve a diminution of the state, particularly the central executive, privatisation of state assets, lower tariffs, tighter integration into world markets. Enhanced flows of trade and investment were matched by greater cross-border migration. And while Latin America had once been a net recipient of migrants, it now became a net exporter. And of course, the geographical patterns also changed. The neoliberal economic turn was matched by political democratisation and decentralisation, though seen by some as an inevitable marriage made in neoliberal heaven, these two sort of automatically went together, the outcome may also have had a rather random quality. The two pro processes, democratisation and liberalisation, happened to coincide. They were also favoured by foreign pressures and influence. So it follows from all this, some say, I mentioned at the beginning, the Latin American state is now notably weaker, challenged by both external forces, globalisation and all the rest, and internal trends, uh, 
which I also touched on. And all these are the things that are now undermining this established nation state. Now, some of those generalizations may be somewhat valid, but I think the outcome is much less profound or structural than often supposed. When I say often, you always say often supposed when you don't really kind of. than some people say, but I'll leave it at that. And, no more. and of course, I'm doing what historians normally do, which is I'm tending to stress continuity over rupture. There has been change, but not as dramatic as some people would imagine. On the economic front, it is certainly true that. Um, states have shrunk, um, some more than others. Uh, these figures I would take very cautiously. They no more than indicate certain trends which tell us what we probably would have guessed anyway. You have cases of declining state involvement in GDP such as Chile, relatively constant pattern in some cases, a rapid increase in Venezuela. Now I'm sure there are experts who might want to question the finer points, but I think the trends are fairly clear. And furthermore, the, 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 the pattern is roughly borne out by the analysis of Flores Macias. I don't know what my fellow politologos think of him, but he seemed to be moderately convincing. And he looks at status versus neoliberal pro-market policies across a range of countries. The status score on the right tells you where they sort of finish up. That also kind of corresponds to what we uh, tend to think. So the, the, the point about it is simply that the pattern is quite variable. There have been degrees of statization, there have been degrees of economic liberalization. In addition, it's certainly true, and this seems a more sort of substantial change to stress, Latin America's role in world trade has changed and grown. This does not, I think, just put the clock back to the old oligarchic age of the late 19th century because you can't step into the same river twice. And so Latin America's insertion into markets today, I think, is substantially different, very noticeably, again, in the case of Mexico or Central America, where non-traditional manufactured exports have been, become much more important, while in the South, the export markets have obviously diversified towards China. So there is, if you like, a return to dependency or export-led growth, but in a rather different global conjuncture. The fact that migration now sucks population out of Latin America rather than the opposite may be regrettable and the product of all kinds of factors, but I don't see that it is in any way a threat to Latin American nationhood. Mexico has been exporting population to the US for a century with only one brief hiatus, and in no way can I see has this undermined Mexican national sentiments. Indeed, the supposed threat to nationality is perceived north of the border in the United States, if you read the rather hysterical account of Samuel Huntington, but I won't go along with that. And regarding, finally, the domestic challenges to the nation-state, I think these are often rather exaggerated. I think that democratization and again, I'm sort of speaking historically, which means not rather amateurishly, I think it's a historical fact. It is a genuine important change in Latin American politics, but I don't see necessarily why democratization would result in a weaker or more inept state. On the contrary, there are plenty of arguments in the other direction. I think as a historian, it's too early to say where the democratic turn may take us, whether it's for the long term, as many now tend to assume, or indeed quite what it means for social and economic development. But I don't necessarily see any argument that tells us that it involves a systematic decline either of state power and capacity or of national cohesion. And what finally of those contrasting anti-national forces organised crime and ethnic autonomy? Now these are both, I think, important, valid things to discuss, and I think they are in some ways genuinely new. So I sort of take off my historical hat and say, yeah, this is actually genuinely new. 
Of course, there'd been organised crime in Mexico for as long as you can remember, but the scale of recent organised crime, particularly connected to narcotics, is much greater. And of course, equally, Indian mobilization is very old in Latin America. I gave examples of it, but the, the form which it is now taking is also uh, significantly new. But do these things taken together somehow represent a mortal threat? Um, are they creating states within a state or systematically failed states? Well, I'm going to argue in my last two to three minutes that that's probably not the case. Organised crime exists in a sort of uneasy symbiosis with the state. Sometimes the state confronts it, or it confronts the state. Sometimes it colonises or cannibalises the state, thus delegitimizing it from within. However, the problem is extremely regional. It's clearly much more important in Mexico than it is, say, in Chile. It is even highly regional within Mexico. Yucatan, as they always tell you, is just as safe as Canada, though not as boring. It's also very dynamic. Sorry, that was a, that was a specific jibe. Please, please ignore that. No. The story is also... <laughs> Canadians are meant to be very docile and non-violent. <laughs> it's also a very dynamic picture. Look, look at the apparent progress made in Colombia. So I would hesitate to sort of extrapolate recent trends. Uh, and so although there's no doubt that organised crime represents a challenge, it debilitates the state, it can make for more porous borders, I don't see it as a sort of fundamental threat to the nation. And indeed, the point I anticipated, there's an argument for saying that the narco elements and the narco cartels in northern Mexico actually form their patriotism and their nationality in many ways. I've got some good examples of this. Um, I won't go into all of them. Amado Carrillo Flores, the Señor de los Cielos, so-called because he had so many Boeing 707s or whatever, offered to pay off Mexico's national debt. I'm not sure he really would have done. Um, the whole culture of sort of narco culture, narco bling, corridos, movies and the rest of it suggests a very powerful sort of liaison. It may be spurious, we may regret it, but a liaison between northern Mexican patriotism, hostility to the US and the narco industry. And finally, in Mexico, uh, in Latin America as elsewhere, claims to ethnic autonomy, uh, some people even talk of, sort of outright secession, are seen as also serious threats to state power and national integrity. There are talks of states within states of new caste wars. Now again, I agree there has been a significant increase in ethnic mobilisation. We can discuss why it started, when it started. I won't go into that. I'm not an expert in it. Um, there are again a combination of domestic factors and some external ones. Partly I think it has to do with the decline, the weakening of older, more class-based um, leftist parties associated with trade unions, which of course took a hammering under authoritarian regimes and by the subsequent neoliberal turn. So one can see various reasons why this trend towards other forms of first social movements and later ethnic politics may have arisen. And as I said, there's no doubt Indians have played a major role in Latin American history in many previous cases. The developmentalist state of the mid-19th century recognised an Indian presence and problem, but the solutions were normally top-down, quite paternalist, and they involved education assimilation. Now, in contrast, we see ethnic movements which are overtly Indian, led by Indian intellectuals and activists committed to Indian rights of various sorts. We also see, interestingly, a growth of Indian populations, particularly in lowland areas. Now, while this is new, I don't personally think it's a fundamental challenge to the Latin American nation-state. 
those ethnic movements have actually made most progress, as far as I can see, in countries like Bolivia and Ecuador, which precisely boast aggressive nationalist governments who are antagonistic both to international capital and to the US. Uh, furthermore, uh, again, all this with a caveat as far as I can see, none of the major Indian or ethnic movements in Latin America propose an outright secession from the existing states in the way the Yucatan elite do, did in the 1840s. Sendero Luminoso, which was the most rejectionist, I'm not saying it was an Indian movement, it had Indians in it, but the most rejectionist anti-national movement was, of course, defeated. And in Mexico and Colombia, governed by centre-right parties, concessions have been made to Indian autonomy, but very much, or de en bas, very limited, very moderate. And indeed, it may even be debated in the Mexican case whether the concessions of usos y costumbres don't actually serve to maintain certain traditional authorities. Also in Mexico, the most radical if you like, pro-Indian movement, the Zapatista movement of the 1990s, was, of course, couched in nationalist revolutionary terms. The very name, Zapatista, indicated an attachment to existing Mexican historical uh, traditions. So I don't personally see, from what I can tell, that Latin America is going the way towards some sort of neo-Inca, neo-Aztec policies, the, the decline and collapse of old uh, nation-states. Indeed, what you could see, or you could argue that's happening, is that old nation-states are mutating, allowing a measure of ethnic representation, and may indeed be the stronger uh, for doing that. They've departed from the old paternalist assumptions of the developmentalist state, or the even genocidal tendencies of oligarchic rule, uh, but this may actually result in stronger rather than weaker nation-states. My last sentence you'll be glad to hear. So at the risk of parroting another cliché, I'm going to quote the famous quote of Mark Twain, who, when he read his obituary in the paper, said, of course, reports of my death are much exaggerated. And it seems to me that's also true of the Latin American nation-state, including territorial authority and, in many ways, borders. States may have yielded ground to global forces, not just in Latin America, trade liberalisation particularly, state shrinking to some extent, but this does not mean a passive state, an inept state, or an outright erosion of national sentiment. And ethnic demands, even if they succeed and lead to so-called pluri-ethnic states, do not spell the end of the nation-state which, as I've stressed, has a very old history in Latin America, a state exercising sovereignty over a given territory and people or peoples. Indeed, such an evolution may strengthen nation-states. It could be argued, I'll throw this out, that Bolivia is a more coherent nation-state than Spain or even the UK. And it's more coherent now, with Evo Morales, an Indian, as president, than it was a hundred-odd years ago when Pablo Zarate, el temible Wilca, at the head of a huge Indian army, threatened to attack the city of La Paz. Today, obviously, Bolivia has an Indian president, sometimes called the first. But, of course, the first Indian president in Latin American history was Benito Juarez, a Zapotec Indian, who, we should remember, was also the great saviour of the Mexican nation-state and, indeed, its architect as well. Stop there. Thank you.